Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Genesis 3. I'll be reading all of Genesis 3 uh, in ESV. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, as we look today at cracks in the foundation. Remember we looked at the foundation, the original design that God had for the role of men and women. And now we're going to look at cracks in that foundation, Genesis 3. Evangelical feminists are different from the liberal feminist egalitarians that we sometimes that I've talked about. Um, the those that are even more liberal than the evangelical feminists, they they believe that the Bible is either just flat out wrong or that it's just the words of men who are wrong. 
or that it's full of errors or all kinds of different things. And, and basically, that the idea is that we can't trust the Bible. It is not our authority. And so, therefore, we don't look to it for the role of men and women in the church or in the home or anything else for that matter. But evangelical feminists, they say, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It's authoritative. It's without error. They say what the problem is, is that traditional Christianity has misinterpreted or misunderstood the Word of God. And so they try to enlighten us as to what it really does mean. And so they say that male headship actually started after the fall, the fall of man into sin. They say that male headship is part of God's curse on the woman for her disobedience. And then they say that that part of the curse is now removed in Christ. And so they'll cite passages like Galatians 3.28 that says that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Sounds okay. See where you're going here. But... What, they, what they're saying with it is that because of Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female in Christ, male headship needs to go away. It was part of the fall. And in Christ, we're being restored. Well, in part, that's partly true. In Christ, we are being restored. But they're wrong about male headship. Because we saw in our study of God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2 that there were eight evidences there of male headship before the fall. We hadn't touched Genesis 3 yet here in our study until we're going to do that today. We already saw male headship is a part of God's original good design. We're going to talk about Galatians 3.28 in a later lesson, but just know this, that in the New Testament, male headship doesn't go away like the evangelical feminists say that it does. And, and they say, you know, like we've talked about, headship goes away. So basically, the husband and wife, they, they take turns or they try to work out some kind of cooperation. And so there's no, either they're both head or no one's head or something like that. That's not at all what the New Testament even teaches. So what we want to look at today is, you know, what impact did the fall have upon the roles of men and women? So if the original design, God's original design, was that there, there would indeed be male headship, and, and we'll talk a little more about that in a second, but what is the impact on those roles? And our main message is this today, at the fall, sin distorted God's good design at the fall, that is Genesis 3, when mankind fell in sin, sin distorted God's good design. And two things to say about that, sin twisted the man's role as head into either dominance or passivity. And of course, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly there. There can be some subtle distinctions in that. And, but basically, it's either dominance, the way that sin impacts the man's thinking about his headship is either dominance or passivity. And in the woman, sin twists the, her role as helper into either control or passivity. So you can see there's some similarities, and I chose the term passivity for both of them because that's a common temptation. And we're going to see that even show up in Genesis 3. 
So, as I said, Genesis 1 and 2 laid the foundation for God's good design, the design for men and women. Man is to serve as the head, and woman is to serve as helper to the man. We're going to see today in Genesis 3 how sin entered into the world and had that corrupting impact on on, on basically everything in this world, including on their role. So, look with me again, Genesis 3, and I want to back up one verse, because this is going to come... Uh, become important in just a moment. Uh, Genesis 2, the last verse, verse 25. And the man, this is after the creation, everything was very good. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. And she added that little flourish there, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that there, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So first, we're going to look at how God's design is attacked. God's design attacked. What would be the best way to get Adam and Eve to turn away from God? Well, apparently, it's to make them discontented with God's design, because that's what Satan did. And he is very crafty, as we're told here in the text. And he, he is smart, and he knows how to trip us up. Which one of the two, Adam or Eve, would be most likely to be tempted with with discontentment? The man, who's up the top, right? Or the woman, who is his helper? Which one is likely to be, most likely to be discontented? The helper, right? And so Satan, through the serpent, bypassed Adam the head... And he approached Eve, the helper. And let's talk briefly about three ways he tempted her. First, he tempted her, as I said, to be discontented. He's basically saying, you know, God must be withholding something good from you. God must not be all that generous. And so, up to this point, Eve saw the Garden of Eden as... An example of God's lavish generosity. Wow, there's so many trees to eat from. And so many different kinds of fruit. There's so many choices. But now, she viewed the garden as restrictive. Thinking God must be stingy. You know? There's one choice he won't let me make. What if I want to choose from that tree? Don't I have the choice? Don't I have a right to that? 
Do you see what discontentment does? It, it changes our perspective from seeing God as good and generous and thinking that he's restrictive and stingy. And notice that the only thing that changed, the circumstances didn't change. There weren't fewer trees now. What changed? Her perspective. See, so one day, it's like, wow, okay, so what am I eating today? And, okay, I want to I mix today to all of a sudden like, huh, I can't have that one. You see, it's restrictive. It's the way she would feel. Second, the serpent suggested that God lied to her. He said, you surely shall not die. I mean, he's just directly calling God a liar. Third, he tempted her to think that God's motive isn't pure. He says, God knows that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, and he's suggesting, you know, don't you have a right to the same knowledge that God has? I mean, who's God think he is? You know, that he's got the prerogative to know between good and evil, but you don't? You don't have a right to that? John Frame explains it this way. He says, in sinning, Eve sought to be like God, not by imitating his goodness. And that's striking. You see, instead of her saying, I want to be like God. And so when I, when I gather up some fruit to serve for me and my husband tonight, I'm going to, I'm going to go and there's these, these mangoes I just discovered. And these things are incre- incredible. And honey, you got to try this. God's goodness, imitate. And that's not at all what she did. But instead, Frame goes on saying, but she coveted his prerogatives. You see, it's like, oh, okay, so God gets to know between good and evil and I don't? You see, again, the only thing that's changed is her perspective. So she made the decision on her own to taste the fruit. And Adam stood by passively and he followed her lead. Role reversal. See what happened? God's design turned upside down, turned on its head. Role reversal. Satan struck at Adam's headship, but he did it indirectly. What he did is he tempted Eve to usurp Adam's headship. And apparently tempted Adam to neglect his own headship, to abdicate it. We need to remember that Satan always wins when ladies try to usurp headship, and when we husbands neglect our headship, Satan always wins. And we have to remember that. Remember the devastating consequences that ensued from that. Well, the reason I wanted to read from verse Chapter 2, verse 25. The word here in verse 7 for naked is different from the word in 2.25. The word here in verse 7 was used, will be used later by Moses in Deuteronomy 28.48. He's going to be telling there about how, okay, so God is, is, you know, is, is saying that. I know you guys are going to turn away from me at some point. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to carry you away into exile. You just need to know that. I'm telling you, you need to obey. And if you obey, I'm going to bless you. And if you don't, I'm carrying you off into exile. And when God says, when I do, I'm going to carry you away naked and you'll be under God's judgment. 
And that's the word he uses here for naked. Adam and Eve's nakedness now exposes their shame and it exposes the fact that they're under God's judgment. Okay, verse 8. And so and they sewed the fig leaves together to cover themselves in verse 8. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is what he used to do. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Then Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? In 9 through 11, God is using the singular you. He's talking to Adam. Where are you, Adam? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, singular, you, Adam, not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the, <clears throat> from the tree and I ate. <clears throat> And then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God's design is now cracked. There's cracks in the foundation that he had laid. As I mentioned, verses 9 through 11, God is speaking directly to Adam. He uses the singular there, you. Not you all, you, Adam. Adam is, is the head. God made him the head. We saw there were eight evidences in chapters 1 and 2 that he was the leader. He was to lead. And he addresses him. He also had given Adam, you remember in chapter 2, he had given Adam the command not to eat from that tree. He gave it directly to him before God created Eve. And it was Adam's job as the leader to convey to his wife that truth. And so God says, Adam, I told you not to eat. And you were to teach your wife what I had said and lead her in that. And you haven't. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know, some of you guys may be thinking, well, wait, wait a minute, Eve sinned first. I mean, isn't that how we are, you know, like... Well, Mom, he hit me first, you know. God doesn't go on who sinned first. And as parents, we really shouldn't either. It's like, okay, well, it's okay. You were second. You punched your sister in the face, so that's okay. She hit you first. No. It's each one individually for their sin. And even though Eve sinned first... And even though she took the lead, see, Adam, you know, was, was this going through his mind like, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll, she, seems, she seems like she wants to lead, and I'll let her. And if, 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 you know, she'll get in trouble. It didn't work that way at all. He let her take the lead, and he got in trouble. And <clears throat> that's the way leadership works. Even though Eve sinned first and took the lead, God held Adam responsible because he was the head. And Romans 5 develops that theologically for us, how he was the head of our race. And it was because of his sin, not hers, his, that we are plunged under sin. 
and the fall came upon our earth. What we find now in verses 14 and following is that, especially for the man and woman, the curses that God assigned them line up with their responsibilities. And I'll call that out here in a minute. So we we read earlier when Nick read that about the curse upon the serpent. We're going to skip that because we're talking about the role of men and women. So God addressed the woman. Look at verse 16, the first part of the verse. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. You may wonder, why did he say that twice? A little different wording, but he says it twice. Why? <clears throat> James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary that by saying it in two ways, but saying the same thing, he believes God, and I think he's right, God's indicating that there's more going on here than just that a, a woman will have pain in those you know, minutes and hours of, of childbirth. Um, he says the increased pain is not just the birthing process, but that children can bring lifelong pain to their parents they, by dishonoring their parents. And the parents' pain of watching their children make bad choices throughout their life sometimes. The parents' pain of seeing their children undergo painful consequences for their sin. And this fits better. It lines up with the curse upon the man because, you know, when you first read this, you might think in terms of, okay, for her, it's confined to those, you know, hours, maybe days for some poor ladies, you know, of child, the actual birthing process. And then it's done. But for the man, it's like every day, work. You know, it's going to be hard. This lines up, I think, better. This is a lifelong curse that we suffer because of sin. And, and so moms, in a very particular way, will give birth to children, but then see, suffer the pain of watching their children make bad choices. Look at the, now the rest of verse 16. So you're going to have this pain in bringing forth children. He says, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What he's saying here is that the woman's desire for her husband, that desire will be to rule over her husband, to control him. It's a desire to control. Um, look at... Chapter 4, just maybe a page over. Chapter 4, verse 7. What's going on here is that Cain and Abel both make their sacrifices. And we're not given a lot of information, but apparently Abel did it the right way. He offered an animal a sacrifice. And Cain did it apparently disobediently and offering the fruit of the ground. So God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice and... He became, verse 5, very angry, and his countenance fell. Verse 6, then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's like a lion waiting to pounce on you. And then a very similar way that this same word is used. And it, sin's desire is for you but you must master it. He's telling Cain, sin has a desire to control you. That's what sin does, right? Think Romans 6. 
Okay? Slavery to sin, where sin is the master. Sin is the one that controls us. And, and so he's telling Cain, sin wants to control you. Its desire is for you. He's saying the same thing to the woman. You're going to want to control your husband because you've now fallen in sin. You're broken. And you're going to want to try to control him. But, God says, he, your husband, shall rule over you. In other words, I'm saying even though you want to do that, dear lady, your husband, I'm still requiring him to exercise headship, godly headship. So that's what God is saying. He's saying because of the fall, woman is going to at times want to control her husband. But the husband still has the responsibility to lead and to be the head. And, and so, just don't miss this. Even though there are cracks in the foundation, God's design still stands. What He laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, that design, that plan for man and woman, even though chapter 3, the fall, has broken us, God's design still stands. And so, as I said earlier, the the curses line up with their individual responsibilities. And so, the woman was to be a giver of life through through giving birth and the whole, you know, bringing children into the world and, and all that goes with that as a mother. She's to be a giver of life, but now she's going to have pain in that. The initial birthing process, and then as I as James Boyce indicated throughout the rest of her life, there's going to be pain in that. It should have been just joy. Now, there will be joy, yes, but there's going to be pain, too. Now, the man was supposed to lead. His fault was a failure to lead. Uh, Look at verses 17 to 19. Then to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Did you notice what God didn't say to Adam? He didn't say, because you ate of the tree. Huh. What did he say? Because you listened to the voice of your wife. In other words, you let her lead and you just were passive. You followed So how does the curse for him line up with his responsibility? Well, remember, the man is to lead, protect, and provide. God said, okay, so now when you provide for her, it's going to be hard. Your work is going to be hard. So when you are going to be out there plowing the fields and everything, there's going to be thorns and thistles, and it's going to be hard all the days of your life until you return to that ground. The curses line up with their responsibilities. 
Ray Ortland explains that both of them sinned at two levels. They, on one level, they sinned by disobeying that direct command of God, don't eat from that tree. But he says for the woman, there was a, uh, she sinned at a deeper level by usurping her husband's headship. And for the man, he sinned at a deeper level too by abdicating his headship. You see what's going on there? So there, were, there was a double sin in it. Eating of the fruit, like they were told not to. And then for her, usurping headship and husband abdicating headship. Okay, now verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name, name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Because why? Remember the word for naked? Shame. He covered their shame. Judgment. He covered it. Okay, we're going to come back to that at the end. As head, Adam gave his wife a second name. He'd called her woman before he named her. Remember, he had as head, he named all of God's creation, including his wife. Now he gave her a second name, Eve. This points forward to the fact that this, this hope that she's the mother of all of the living. And you notice how his, his attitude changed here. Because what happened, what was his attitude toward his wife when God said, Okay, Adam, you know, what did you, you know, why are, why are you hiding? And, you know, did you eat of the, what I told you not to? And what did Adam do? Yeah. The woman, he blamed her. Then who else did he blame? God. The woman, you gave me. And you know, really, when we blame shift, we're always blame, shifting the blame to God. You might not realize it, but you are. Blame shifting is one of our, sadly, one of our natural ways of responding. When we have sinned. But he changes now. And probably as a result of God's graciousness, Adam is now speaking graciously about his wife, and he's speaking with honor about his wife as he's supposed to. He renames her to capture the hope that God gave them in verse 15. And we're going to come back to that, but the hope of redemption that God gave. And Adam apparently is reflecting on that. And he says, I don't know exactly what that means, but somehow... Through the woman, I was just blaming God is going to provide redemption. And he gives her a name that calls out that hope. You see, through childbirth, women will give life. And eventually, one of those women will give birth to the Messiah. The one who would set us free from the curse. And that's this verse 15. We'll again come back. But that's what, that's what Eve, that's the whole, what Adam's, I think, trying to get across. Is that, yeah, I was, I was trying to blame her, but it's going to be through the woman that God said that he's going to provide Messiah. That's where our hope will be. So now God's design is distorted. What, what results from their sin? And I'm going to call out nine different things here. First, <clears throat> And these are related to the role of men and women. And I was telling Connie this morning, it just it, it kind of blows my mind. I never realized 
how many direct things are called out in this Genesis 3 passage and then in the rest of Genesis and even in the Old Testament, consequences of turning God's design of man and woman upside down. Okay, and that's what these are going to we're going to call out. There are other there are other results, but I'm going to call out the ones that are directly tied to the role of men and women. First, the man and woman they resort to blame shifting, and as I said, Adam even blames God. You know, she blames the serpent, he blames her, and then he blames God. You know, it's just blame shifting all over, right? That's where it all started. So when you find yourself shifting the blame, you know where you got it, right? Second, Adam admits that he hid because he was afraid. God said, why are you hiding? I was afraid. Sinful fear entered the world at that point. You know, we've talked about fear. There's sinful fear and there's godly fear. This is sinful fear. This is where it entered. Third, broken relationships. Sin separated the man and the woman. I mean, here they are. I mean, they're, they're pointing the finger at each other and stuff. You know, it's just like, you know, them. They're the problem, not me. It separated them, but it separated them from God. Now they're hiding from God. They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. Oh, what a wonderful thing that must have been to walk with God. And now they're separated from Him. They're embarrassed to be seen by Him. To this day, Satan seeks to disrupt harmony in marriage as much as he possibly can. When he hinders our oneness as husband and wife, he weakens us. So that we're no longer effective in those moments in as being workers in God's kingdom. You know, you may not think that, well, you know, this oneness thing, okay, that would be a nice to have maybe, but that's Genesis 2. That's key. The New Testament picks that same thing up. This oneness is important. Satan wants to keep us from being one because he makes us ineffective as servants of God. When he does that. Fourth, role distortion. I've got a long quote. I've broken into three parts here from John Piper. Role distortion. That That's just glaring here, right? Piper explained that when sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage. Not because it brought headship and submission into existence. That's what the evangelical feminists are trying to say. And he's responding to that. But because it twisted man's, the, the man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some men, and like Adam, lazy indifference in others. And it twisted the woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative obsequiousness, or basically where she's kind of just going along with being passive and, and, you know, okay, I'll submit, but doing it in a way to manipulate. That's what, that's what he's saying here. So she's using, she's like, okay, I'm going to submit, but do it to manipulate. So that in some women and then brazen insubordination in others. That's what I was calling out earlier is control. He says sin didn't create Headship and submission, again, contrary to evangelical feminists. Sin ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. That was, that's what happened to God's good design. What was supposed to be beautiful. Fifth. <clears throat> Spiritual warfare now is going to be a continuing reality. You know, we saw when Nick read this, 
God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. There's going to be that. There's spiritual warfare. This is where spiritual warfare started. It was in the garden when, when the certain serpent tempted Eve. And now it's a daily reality. And we need to think about that for just a second. You know, being married isn't always easy, right? If, you, if you're married, you know that. Sometimes it's really, really hard. And I know some of you young people aren't married yet. Oh, no, we fall in love. We you know, never have any problems. And, and I always love in premarital counseling. Sometimes you'll have folks that they're like, oh, no, we never fight. I'm like, oh, wait till you get married. Yeah. <clears throat> Usually I'll say, well, okay, learn this. And then you use it to help people that you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but <clears throat> do you realize that when marriage is hard... Which is often, I mean, you sin against each other. Do you realize that spiritual warfare? That's, that's how it all started. Genesis 3. It was supposed to be this beautiful, godly headship, godly helpership, as one writer called it. And then it became difficult and became ugly, as Piper said. Spiritual warfare. And it's no doubt or no surprise, you know, we're we're going to eventually get to Ephesians 5.22 and following. I know we're taking a little while to get there, but we need to do this. We need the foundation. But what comes after Ephesians 5? The easy answer, right? Ephesians 6. Okay, and you got children. And then what comes at the end of chapter 6? Spiritual warfare. Hmm. Kind of sounds like, wow, Paul kind of read Genesis, didn't he? All right. One of the consequences, spiritual warfare will be a continuing reality. Now, Genesis, the, the rest of the book, is going to illustrate other effects of the fall. And, and on one of these, we'll see in a minute, it, we'll see it in the rest of the Old Testament, not so much in Genesis. But, but Genesis, one of the things that it will do is it's going to show us, well, let me show you what the fall did. Okay, and so Moses shows that first. So this is number six. Polygamy. Originally, God designed marriage between one man and how many women? One. And they're supposed to become one, right? No room for polygamy. And, you know, this broke down really quickly. Do you, do you remember when the first, who the first polygamist was? Lamech, guess where? Chapter 4. I mean, we're just one page over. All of a sudden, there's God's design's breaking down further. And, and we find, you know, men that we, we look up to, uh, you know, men who are the patriarchs, a lot of them were polygamists. Abraham, Jacob, we saw this morning David, right? And it, what's interesting is Abraham's... Well, he was called Abram back then in Genesis 16. Do you know how his polygamy came about? The same way that Adam's sin came about. He uses the same phrase. He listened to the voice of his wife. 
he let her lead. Sarah said, oh, God promised to give, you know, you a child, Abraham or Abram. Well, you know, we need to help. God needs a little help here. So why don't you go into my handmaiden? And he listened to her and he, he let her lead. And that didn't work out well, did it? Number seven, adultery. God's original design, again, was for a man to cleave to his wife, singular, not wives, wife. And they are to become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. We find later in Genesis 35, Reuben went in to his father's wife, Bilhah. Again, you know, his father was a polygamist. Now he's, you know, an adulterer with his father's wife. Now, probably the most famous in the Old Testament is, you know, David's sin with Bathsheba. Again, a polygamist and an adulterer. That's just that's the effects of the fall on the role of men and women. Uh, number eight, divorce. This is the breaking of the lifelong marriage covenant that a man and a woman make with each other before God when they get married. They make a covenant. They say, this is for life. We're, we're committed now to each other. And, and, of course, we're talking here about sinful divorce. There are places for um, divorce that is allowed by Scripture. We're not going to go into that right now. But this is talking about sinful divorce. Moses knew. It, we don't find, I couldn't remember any place in Genesis talked about divorce, but Moses is going to talk about it in Deuteronomy 24. And as Jesus commented on that passage, he's like, Moses knew that you guys were going to be hard-hearted, you men, and you were going to divorce your wives even though you weren't supposed to. And so God is protecting that woman. And that's where, why you have that, those instructions there in Deuteronomy 24. But what did Jesus say in Paul? What did, what did both of them do? They don't say, well, let's go back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. No, let's go back to the beginning. I always said, no. Back to the beginning. That's what Jesus said. Go back to the beginning. God's original design. And Jesus does that like in Matthew 19, 9. One more. Homosexuality. And a quote from uh, Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger. Excellent book, by the way. Um, they say this. Homosexuality is an obvious breach of God's creation design of man as deliberately masculine and of the woman as deliberately feminine, and of the creation ordinance of marriage as between a man and a woman. It represents, homosexuality represents aberrant, unnatural behavior, epitomizing rebellion against the Creator's design of marriage as heterosexual. We do find that in Genesis chapter 19. God has a very severe judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah as a result of their homosexuality. And I know some people say that, oh, no, their sin was inhospitality. Did you actually read that passage? You know, it boggles my mind that they'd say that. But just go to Jude, Jude 7. He calls it gross immorality. That's why God judged them and them going after strange flesh. In other words, men going after men. Um... It was because of their their homosexual behavior that God judged them so severely. That was one of the 
things, and we see it a lot in our day, don't we, where there's just uh, God's design is so distorted to where they just throw away God's design. And they say, we're not going to obey God. But it, it, but it's not just the those in, with that pursue homosexuality or promote it. But think about the sinful divorce, adultery, polygamy, and even the level of, of those of us here when we sinfully, when we sin against our spouse, when we sinfully, you know, have a, a fight with our spouse, that's the effect of the fall. And we need to take all of it just as seriously. So, Genesis chronicles how sin has corrupted mankind. It chronicles how sin has corrupted God's original design. We just talked about that. And, you know, some people, I've known people that said, you know, I started reading and it just got too depressing. You're missing the point. Okay, it's supposed to be depressing. But not only depressing, because there's hope. You see, what Old Testament history and what Genesis, what they're doing is showing us how much we need a Savior. You know, so don't get hung up on issues as issues. Don't get hung up on sins as issues. All of those point and they raise red flags. We need a Savior. And so those of us who who have a hard time being godly toward our wife or our husband, we need a Savior. And if you say, well, I've trusted in Christ, you still need a Savior today. You're going to need Him again tomorrow okay, to help you do this in a God-honoring way. And all of these other sins that, that has resulted from the fall, they need a Savior. That's what, that's what all this is showing us. You need a Savior. And, and it's so beautiful the way God has ministered to us and provided us hope because just as soon as the fall happens and in the midst of the curses, what does He do? Genesis 3.15, where He's talking to the serpent, talking about the enmity between the serpent and the woman and His seed and the woman's seed. He, that ultimate seed of the woman, shall bruise you, serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God was already given hope. We can't miss that. That ought to be our message to each other, to ourselves, and to the world around us. That you just look around and you can see we need a Savior. The Bible tells us we need a Savior. And God tells us who that Savior is. He planned it from the very beginning. And actually, Peter tells us from even before the foundation of the world. But the first record of it is here, right at the beginning. This one that the, the serpent will bruise on the heel. In other words, it'll be fatal, but not permanent. The Messiah will die. But because of who the Messiah is, he will live again. So it'll only be like he was wounded on the heel. The serpent will be wounded on the head. It'll be permanent. It'll be, he will one day suffer total defeat. In the midst of the curses, there's the promise of redemption. 
through a woman, Messiah will come. And like Adam, we need to think rightly about our wives, speaking graciously about them with honor. And Genesis is going to then, another key thing Genesis does, it develops the family line of that seed. It narrows it down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. Remember, Messiah is coming from the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, we read more of the Old Testament and we find through it narrows even more through David. And Messiah will be the son of David, right? That's beautiful what God does. In the midst of such ugliness and pain, he gives us the hope of redemption. Well, we know that Mary was the woman. She is the one, the woman who finally would give birth to the Messiah. Jesus was the seed of the woman mentioned already way back here in Genesis 3.15. That was Jesus that God's talking about. He is the one who is the Messiah. He's the one that would redeem us from the curse of the law. That curse sounded pretty bad, and it was. By itself, left us with no hope, but God didn't only give us the curse, He gave us the promise. And we have that promise in Christ. He has come. We look back. We get to see. We know his name now. We know who he came from. And we know what he's done. He has defeated sin. And he gives us life. And he is the one now we worship as we come to the Lord's table.